Okay. So let me pull you back. I'm here at a wide variety of, of words, from celebration to Wheaties. Uh, any other words that come to mind? That's the spectrum. Wheaties and celebration. What's in between? The Greek goddess Nike. Okay, the Greek goddess Nike, yes. Well, if, if you've been like with us for a little while, you, you probably are prepared for the trick questions that we ask. Um, in, and I wouldn't say this is necessarily a trick question. This is actually, the reality is, when we think of victory in our culture, we think of those words. We think of celebration, we think of joy, we think of winning, we think of conquering. And um, Jesus is going to introduce something to us today that's different. And in fact, uh, here's what I want to propose. And I want you to look at me like this. Hmm, I don't think so, Scott. You need to prove that to me. Which is, uh, Jesus is going to um, model victory through suffering. And I know you don't believe me, but we're going to find out. Trust me. Um, so I want, to, I want to do that, but first let me pray. God, I thank you that we get to be here. Um, I'm thankful for your word that uh, hits, us, hits us at different places in life. And at any point in life can perform surgery in a way that may seem painful, but has our good in mind. And so God, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the example of Jesus, even though it's not natural for us. I pray God that we would have eyes to see what you are modeling for us and what you are willing to do for us tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, um, let me start with a little bit of context to kind of set up getting just to the triumphal entry in chapter 11. So, Jesus has predicted his death, burial, resurrection three times. He did it in chapter 8. You can look at the verses. It's verses 31 and 32. He did it in chapter 9, verse 31. He did it in chapter 10, verses 33 through 34. So, three separate times, Jesus, with his disciples, predicts his death, burial, and resurrection. Predicts he's going to be... Um, taken by the, the leaders and put to death, and then he's going to rise again. And every time, so th- this isn't new information for them. This is, they're hearing this over and over, and every time they're, they're shocked and they react in different ways. And then at the end of that section in chapter 10, the very last kind of section there, is this verse 1045, which should be a verse that, that we have in memory or put to memory or something that we think about because it's pretty profound in which Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. So that's a profound statement. And that sets up what Jesus does next, which is, He enters into Jerusalem. It's time. This is His final week, and most of the Gospels, there's more spent on this week than any other week in Jesus' life, and in a lot of ways, more on this week than several years of Jesus' life. And so he enters into, the, into Jerusalem, into this, um, this triumphal entry. And, and even in the phrase, triumphal 
entry has this idea that Jesus is coming to conquer because he's king. And what's, what's weird about Jesus is, and this is something I want you to think about, is with Jesus, he isn't, things aren't what they seem. So when he comes on the scene, he teaches with authority. Who is this man? Isn't he a son of a carpenter? He's from Nazareth. Is anything good come from Nazareth? Well, he's, he's clearly knowledgeable in the scriptures. Maybe he's a prophet. And then he starts healing people. Well, maybe he's a healer. And then he, then he starts commanding authority over. And this is what Mark does a really good job of helping us see in concession. He, he has authority over nature, the wind and the waves. He has authority over demons and the spiritual warfare, over sickness and, and illnesses, and then over death. He starts raising people back to life. And so those that are close to him are seeing this and just being, just what he's doing is amazing. And then, and then every once in a while, he, he allows a few people t- to know that he is, in fact, the Messiah, that he is God. And so you, you got to see kind of from their perspective, who is this guy? He's got authority. He teaches with authority. He's a healer. He's Whoa, he's doing things that no human has ever done before. He's claiming to be a Messiah and claiming to be God. Is this the one? And is he come? It's time, let's do this. And, and so Jesus slowly starts to kind of reveal himself in, in small, subtle ways and then conceal himself in other ways. And so with Jesus, over and over and over, you see in the Gospels where he doesn't do what anything or what anyone expects him to do or even sometimes wants him to do. So things aren't what they seem with Jesus. So at this point, he's finally like, okay, it's time. Go get a donkey. I'm riding in. And then people start laying palm branches and saying, Hosanna, which is, um, you know, Savior, praise the Lord. And, and he's taking it. And he's like, yes, that's true. But he's riding on a donkey. And so he's coming in to claim his kingdom and to claim his rightful place as king, but he doesn't have a military with him. He doesn't, he's not even riding on a war horse. He's riding on a donkey, and he's got fishermen next to him. So it's like, wait, I thought you were... This is not what we expected. And so over and over, that's, that's kind of what, what's happening with him. And then in the last section that we did last week, Mark, or, uh, yeah, Mark 11 and 12, Drew did a good job of helping, helping us see Jesus and the temple, because that was kind of the focus. And so not only is, uh, well, Jesus starts to show that the temple and its leaders aren't what they seem either. And it's all kind of used to, to well, illustrate this point. He uses this fig tree in which he sees it. It's, it's bearing leaves. It looks like it should be lush and fruitful. He walks up to it. It has no fruit. He curses it. And this tree becomes this example of when something appears to be healthy, and yet bears no fruit, what, what should we do to it? Well, the only natural thing is chop it down and get rid of it, because it's no good. Chop it down and destroy it. And, and, and so he even says, that's what's going to happen to you. And, he, and, and Drew did a good job helping us see, like that's his condemnation to the temple. And the temple was such a, the center of their culture, such a, an identity piece that this was not something easy for them to understand. And it took a while. And so the disciples are, again, constantly being thrown off. It's time. Oh, it's not time. 
He's hit. Oh, he's not ready. And, okay, it's, let's do this, but wait a minute. He's, where's the army? And I thought we were, do we need swords? What, like, what, how do we do this? And at every point, Jesus is, is surprising them, but he's also helping them see, yeah, things aren't what they seem in, in, in your religious system. So, in, and then the end of chapter 12 ends with this, uh, they're leaving the temple, and, and Jesus stops, and he sees this widow um, with these two mites, these two tiny little coins, which are worth next to nothing, putting those in the temple, and he knows that's all she had, and he's saying, that is what, that's, that's not what you think it is. You think that's little, but that's a lot, that's real, genuine faith. As opposed to those who are putting in large amounts and making a big deal of it, again, he's pointing out, that's not what you think it is, and that woman is not what you think it is. That's a big deal. So, Mark is helping us see the disciples aren't getting it. They're not seeing the full picture. And so we enter into chapter 13. And if you have a Bible, you can kind of follow along. But they, they're, they're camping out in Bethany. So as they're leaving the temple, they're heading to Bethany. And, um, and Jesus says, or no, the disciples turn around. And, and as they're leaving, so they're heading out of, out of Jerusalem into or, or towards the, uh, the uh, Mount of Olives, which I've been. I'll show some pictures here in a second. Um, and so they look back and they see this. Show the first picture. So I don't know if they see this, but they see this is the temple lit up at night. I didn't take this picture. Um, but, and they're in awe. They're enamored by the temple. And so the disciples are going, Jesus, look at these stones. Look at these buildings. Aren't, isn't this magnificent? Isn't this a sign of God's goodness to us and His faithfulness to us? And wow, aren't we amazing? And look at what God has done. Of course, the, that little shiny thing at the top wouldn't have been there. But still, it's a magnificent building. And Jesus, again, they're not getting it. He's already told them, this temple is not what you think it is. And He says, oh yeah, I see these stones. In fact, Soon, all of these stones, none of these stones will be left on top of each other. All of these will be torn down. And so they're walking out of the temple, and they're heading towards the Mount of Olives. And you can imagine, this is what I think is happening. He says this, and then they, they're totally thrown off. Because for the temple to be destroyed means the end of them. That, that means they're, they're done. It's either they're done, or <laughs> this is, it's the end of time. Because that would be terrible for the, for the temple to be destroyed. So they're processing this, and they get to the Mount of Olives, and they ask the question, okay, so Jesus, what, what are some signs that, that the end is coming? How do we know when the end is coming? And he launches into this, this explanation that chapter 13 in Mark and chapter 24 in Matthew are probably some of the more debated sections of the Gospels. Because there's a lot that Jesus is saying. He predicts a lot of things. He's giving them signs and he's helping them see and discern what's going to happen. But um, he doesn't quite explain it exactly. He, he gives them some things and I'll talk about that here in a second. But I want to show you um, what Jesus says, those stones that will be, no stone will be left un, unturned. Um, he's most likely referring to a literal event that happened in, in 70 A.D. So you can read about this, the destruction of the temple. Rome c- 
comes in. Rome finally is put, put out and done with um, the Jews and their obstinance and their rebellion against their, their rule. And so they come in to wipe out the people and to destroy the temple. So they come and desecrate the temple. They destroy it. They knock the stones over. They, they knock the building down. And um, actually show two pictures from, from not, the, not the next one, but the one after that. Yes. So this is, a, this is there right now. I got to see this in 2016. So these are leftover from when that destruction happened in 70 AD. So th- this is one of my favorite moments being in, in Israel, is seeing the literal fulfillment of the words of Christ in, in this picture. Because um, when he says, not one stone will be left unturned, this is what's left over from that. So they, and these are the tops of the building. So show the next one. It shows you the size of it. So that's me standing. So those are, the, those are the stones at the very, very top, okay, that would have been toppled over and, and, and then weren't used again when, they, when the Ottoman Empire came back in at some point. Jared can tell us when that happened. But, you know, the temple has been rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed, and there's been a lot of history happened since then. But that is a literal fulfillment of what Jesus is describing at the beginning of 13. And these, these stones are massive. So show the one two, two back. This right here is like at the base on the corner. It's so the pile of rocks is like right here. So these would have been some of the original stones. Um, and, and they were put back. But if you notice, there's an inch right here and right there, right where they come together. Those, that stone right there is about five feet tall, eight to ten feet deep and like 10 to 12 feet long and I was told at that time there's only like one or two machines in the world that can pick up and move that stone or one of those stones like it's an amazing feat and each each stone from the bottom to the top is is set in one inch just so that it has this kind of a thing instead of leaning out and so I mean phenomenal and you can read about King Herod building the original rebuilding it um, or the, the, the wall to that. But, so there's a lot of history here, and Jesus is describing the incoming, and he's referring to this, or he's referring to just the end in general. And so that's the, the debate. I won't get into it, and I won't describe what I think different parts mean. I think it's a combination of both. I think it's primarily this, though, that he's referring to. I think he's primarily describing something they will experience. And, and, and it's going to show that, see, this temple is not what we need. It's not the end. When that happens, it's not the end. It's actually the beginning of the birth pains, if you will, is what he, des- is what he describes it as. So in 13, those, there's three things to point out. One is that one. Which, which is he describing? The, descri- the 70 AD temple destruction, or is he talking about the end of time? And, and there's debate about it, and I won't get into it. The second thing I want to point out is verses 9 through 12. Notice what he says. He's talking to them. And he says in verse, verse at the end of verse 9 that they will be flogged. In verse 10 he says, no, he says in verse 9 you will stand before governors and kings. Basically you'll be arrested, stand before them on trial. Um, he says this is necessary for the gospel to be preached to all nations. That's in verse 10. 
In verse 13, he says, you'll be hated by everyone and that at the end, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so Jesus is kind of, again, telling them, reminding them um, of the path that they will take um, to victory. So we go on, and uh, in the rest of 13, a couple other things I want to, actually one more thing I want to point out is, what I think is kind of the main point. Jesus is saying in 13, which is be alert. So turn to, or look at verse 23. You must watch. I have told you everything in advance. He, in verse 24 through 27, he talks about all these different things that will happen. Tribulation, sunbeam darkened, moon shed to light, falling sky. Anytime the Bible, the, the prophets talk like this sometimes. Stars falling from the sky. and um, that, that isn't, that's hyperbole to describe the end of all things. Like, it, it, is, it is catastrophic is kind of the, the, what's happening there. So that may be an example where he's referring to the end. Who knows? He may be referring to that moment as well. As well, but and then at the end in verse 33, watch and be alert, for you don't know when the time is coming. At the end of 37, be alert. So that seems to be the message that he's trying to get get across to them. That that he's wanting them, and he even uses the illustration of a fig tree. Again brings it back to a fig tree and says, in the same way, when a fig tree is lush with green leaves, you know that summer is coming. So, in other words, when you see things happening, be able to discern what's coming. And, and that is, that's the message. And he's warning them to be alert, to not be deceived, and to be ready, to be on guard. And then we go into 14. And in 14, Jesus goes back to Bethany, and he stays at Bethany, um, possibly to through until Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday. And um, there are several things that happen, some of which we could spend our whole time talking about. And the first one is this, this story, this example of this woman anointing him with perfume. So remember back, you have the widow who gives very little to the temple for worship, and Jesus says, great faith. And that is something and then you have this woman here. We don't know if she's rich. We don't know if she's poor. We don't know much about her. Um, she could be one of the, the women that's been with their group. She could be somebody new. But she takes this jar of perfume that's worth, it says 300 denarii, which, which would be, it says in the bottom in your footnotes, a denarii is like a day's wage. So 300 would be almost like a year's salary. Um, so 300 days of working that's, a, that's what it would have cost, which was a fortune for this culture and this, you know, this um, third world country. And so the, the disciples kind of get all upset about it. Jesus, well, you know, don't let her do that. We could, we could take that. We could sell it and give it to the poor. And Jesus says something very interesting. He doesn't say what you expect him to say. You expect him to say, yes, that's right. We should give it to the poor. They need it. I don't need it. It's just perfume. I don't need to smell good. Give it to the poor. But instead he says, no, you'll always have the poor, but you won't always have me. So Jesus, in that moment, says, what she's doing to lavish on me is good. It's, I am worthy, Jesus says, I am worthy for, for her to be lavishing on me. And it reminds me of the parable of the, the lost 
uh, or parable of the chest, the lost field. It's the it's the field when he buys the field, and he f- discovers this treasure chest, and he and he goes and he sells everything he has to buy that field because of the treasure that's found in that field. And and I think Jesus is saying something similar here. He's saying, I am worthy for her to lavish this on me, to waste this on me, is good. And so, it's interesting. The widow's mites, and then 13, and then this woman anointing, and, and you know, spending all kinds of money for, to, for worship. And Jesus says, both are good. So that's an interesting story. One that we could spend time on. The next Big, big idea is the Passover. And so we could spend the whole time talking about the Passover and what it means. But the Passover at this point was, was a meal. And it was referring back to an event that happened in Exodus chapter 12. So you can look that up later. Exodus 12, uh, the, the uh, Israelites have been in Egypt for 400 years. And God, through Moses, is bringing them out. And the, the Egypt, Egyptians are being stubborn about it. And so God says the, the last and final plague is for me to kill all the firstborn and I will pass through. And anybody who has lamb's blood in faith spread above their door, their door frame, um, I will pass over. And everybody who doesn't, I will enter in. As the angel of death, it says. And so um, this, this, this meal that they're that they're eating has been celebrated every year. And so when you think of the Passover meal, you think of um, sacrificial lamb, think of salvation, think of freedom. And Jesus, in these verses, claims that He is the fulfillment of this meal. And He says, from here on out, when you partake of this, you're partaking of Me. I am, He says, the lamb that, that was slain. It's my blood that will establish a new covenant of salvation and freedom to all. So this is a huge moment that Jesus is having with them. And establishing this new covenant, which has become a sacrament for us, um, called communion. Some call it Eucharist. But it's connected, directly connected to um, the communion that we take each, each week. The bread and the wine to represent the body and blood of Jesus so that's happening. Also what's happening is Jesus is revealing that someone in this group is going to betray them. So, so some of the disciples, or at least one of the disciples, is not what they seem. And for some reason Mark doesn't show Judas getting up and leaving. Some of the other Gospels do. Uh, Mark just kind of is flying through um, some of these details. But Jesus announces it. The, the disciples go, is it I? Is it I? They start looking at each other. Who is it? Because they don't know who it is. And Jesus says, it's whoever I dip my bread in the wine with. And, and the other Gospels describe that moment with Judas. And he says, Judas, go do quickly what you've set out to do. And he gets up and leaves. And then the disciples are, you know, Jesus goes into this thing and he says, you know, actually all of you are going to fall away. And he quotes the scripture from Zechariah that you know the, the 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 sheep will be scattered, and and Peter opens up his big mouth and says, "Not me, Lord. I'm not gonna. No way that's gonna happen to me." And, and Jesus is like, "Actually, yeah. Three times you're gonna deny me tonight before the rooster crows twice. 
And so you have this you have this moment again where Peter is not who he thinks he is. He's not who he seems to be either. So they they leave that upper room. They head towards the garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is this garden right at the base of Mount of Olives and it's basically was an olive garden. Gethsemane, the root of it is like olive press. And so there has been over the years um, uh, you can look up some of these olive trees. They're they're gnarly, massive, really, really wide, but short trees. It's a fascinating thing. But anyway, they still have them there. Um, and so he's there praying, and I want to come back to this moment because I want to spend our time at the end focusing on what happens there in the garden But during his prayer. But so he has, from that point, he, he uh, Judas comes finally with his entourage of soldiers and um, religious leaders to arrest Jesus and he betrays him with a kiss which is a very very intimate betrayal and and Peter in that moment whips out a sword and thinks it's it's go time like okay Jesus now is the time we're not letting them take you we're going to fight and uh, he cuts off the servant of, of the high priest's ear and it's Luke, the doctor, is the only one. All four Gospels record this event, but Luke, the doctor, is the only one that, that records Jesus healing his ear, which is kind of interesting. Um, and then you have this little moment. This is just a fun side note. I remember sitting in Bible college learning this for the first time, that the Bible has a streaker. Did you know this? The Bible has a streaker, yes. And I think his name is Mark. Um, but look at verse uh, 51. 51. Yeah. 50, yeah, 50 and 51. They all deserve. So here's what we know about Mark. It most likely it was Mark's house or, or the Mark's parents or whoever that owned the house where the upper room was. So Mark most likely would have been around the disciples during that upper room discussion. And so would have maybe followed him to the garden at a distance, wearing only, only a linen cloth. And, and then when the, you know, Judas and the entourage show up, and everybody's scattering, and they're trying to arrest everybody, and someone grabs him, and he escapes, and he runs away. And Mark's the only one that records this little streaker. And so I think, I think Mark's running naked home. And uh, so he records that event. Anyway, there you go. Mark the streaker. Um, so here's the highlight is again in this same moment Jesus is king he's claimed to be Messiah and God and here he is being arrested and he's not doing a single thing about it so this would be your time Jesus to come out strong bring the angels let's do this and he's arrested and the disciples are confused and, they're, and, and so they scatter and they run Things are not what they seem. So Jesus is taken to this trial. In this trial, he stands before the high... Listen to all the people that are there. The high priests, all the chief priests, it says. The elders, the scribes, they're all there. And they're all, they're all bringing these accusations to Jesus, none of which can be proven. And Jesus stands silent throughout, the, throughout all of it until this question is asked by, by the high priest. He says, enough. 
with the accusations. Are you the Messiah or not? And he says these words, I am. Which, if you know much about Exodus chapter 3 and the connection that's there, when, when God appears to Moses in the bush, in this burning bush, and Moses is saying, who, who should I say that, send, that sends me? And he says, tell him I am sent you. And so this, this is a moment. So when he says this, he's not just saying, yeah, yeah, I am. No, this is a declaration of something profound in which that's the point. And he, and he, goes, he goes on. He, he doesn't just say, I am. Um, he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. So just in case you missed the hint, my, my reference to Exodus 3 let me just also tell you, I am going to come back and reign with authority over all of you. And, and so the high priest says, we don't need any more testimonies. He said enough, put him to death. And so in the meantime, Peter is in the courtyard and he does exactly what Jesus says he would do. He's there, he's trying to get a sneak peek. We know that, we know that John had a cousin who was somehow related to Someone on the inside that could get them access to um, some of this. Um, I don't know how I know that. I just know that. And, and I learned it at some point. But anyway. And so we know that Peter's there somehow. He, has, he's, he was able to get in. But then people start, hey, weren't you with that Nazarene? Aren't you with that guy? And every time he says, no, no. And then at the very end, the third time, he denies it. He, he's adamant. I don't even know the man. And at that point, he hears the rooster crow twice. And one of my favorite paintings, I don't know if you've seen this at Ozark, there's a painting. So in Luke, uh, I don't know the verses, but in Luke, this moment is captured. So Mark doesn't describe the different trials that Jesus is going back and forth from, but the other Gospels do. So he sees Herod, then he sees the high priest. Or I, I don't know the order, but he at some point goes to Pilate. So he's like being transported back and forth to these different buildings. And so in, in Luke, the moment this, the rooster crows twice and, and Peter has denied him three times, it says that Jesus turned and looked at him. And so there's this painting in Ozark, I don't know if you've seen it in the library, where it's this Jesus is bloody and he's shackled and he's, he's got this look like this and you see Peter, actually you're seeing Jesus in the distance and you're seeing it from Peter's perspective. And uh, that's, a, that's a powerful scene and moment in, in which Peter goes out and it says he breaks down and he weeps. Other, other Gospels say he wept bitterly. So, a lot has happened. So how did, how did, how did the disciples miss this? How did, how did they not see this coming? Because Jesus, over and over, in fact, in, I mean, you read the other Gospels, in John, he's, he's saying, it's better that I leave like hours before he's arrested. It's better that I leave and the Holy Spirit come. And so he's warning them and telling them. And he says the end is coming and he's all this stuff. Um, and, and they miss it. Now, aside from the sovereignty of all of this, which is, I think, plays a big, big part, uh, maybe what's happening is the disciples believe something that we often believe. And that is that victory comes through conquering. That victory comes through winning. 
It doesn't come through defeat. It comes through winning. And, and so I think this happens anytime we think that we should not have to go through difficulties and yet still want to grow and mature. I think we're buying into this idea that, that victory and maturity and growth, all things that are up, happen by being up, never by being down. That whenever we pray for every bad thing to go away and only good things like health and wealth and happiness to come, we buy into the same idea. So I want to show you and prove to you um, that God rarely operates that way, and especially uh, as we see in, in, in Jesus' prayer in the garden, which we'll get to. But there's this unfolding story development happening throughout the Bible that I'll, I'll just give some highlights to. But you have Adam and Eve um, uh, working the ground for fruit to come. You have pain in childbirth for joy to come. You have Jacob working 14 years to get Rachel. You have Joseph uh, being sold by his, rejected by his brother, sold into slavery, falsely accused, imprisoned on his way to um, royal ascension. You have Moses spending 40 years hiding in the, in, in the wilderness before the burning bush. You have David. David spent his 20s. Most of you are in your 20s. He spent his 20s, a decade of his life, as anointed king, God had promised him and told him through, through Samuel, you will be king. And then for ten years he ran for his life from Saul. Ten years hiding in caves and hiding from Saul. And Saul trying to kill him over and over and over. And he's waiting for God to make, make him king. And he wasn't going to take it in his own hands. He was going to let God do it. And David is a powerful example of, weak, of human weakness for the glory of God. Um, the Psalms present King David as this righteous sufferer. So you fast forward quite a bit, you have the church being burst, birthed in um, the midst of persecution and dispersion. Um, Paul, or actually Saul, comes to Christ, and Ananias, who is this God-fearing man, is told by God, listen, you're going to go help Saul, and he's like... <laughs> Saul, the one who's coming to kill us? He said, yes. And he says, I will show him how much he will suffer in my name. That's what he tells Ananias about Saul, who becomes Paul, who becomes this great missionary, and that's exactly what he does. As he goes from mission, mission to mission, he suffers constantly. He's, he's beaten and stoned and whipped and shipwrecked, imprisoned. And, his, and his, his calling comes at great cost to him. And eventually... Um, he's murdered and killed in, in Rome, we believe. So throughout the Bible, you see this development of God's kingdom in exaltation through humility, in power through weakness, in victory through suffering, and in life through death. Jesus tells his, his followers, unless you want to, um, if you want to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross daily, deny yourself, and follow me. And they had to learn what that meant. And so, uh, Robert Coleman in this book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, uh, he says this, following Jesus seemed easy enough at first, 
but that was because they had not followed him very far. It, it soon became apparent that being a disciple of Christ involved far more than a joyful acceptance of the messianic promise. It meant the surrender of one's whole life to the Master in absolute submission to His sovereignty. And Jesus not only wanted that for them, He modeled that for them. He, he said, follow me. And by the way, I'm heading to the cross. And that's where you're heading as well. And each of the disciples, each of the disciples met that cross. John died on the island in prison on, in Patmos, but for sure all the rest of them were, were killed or crucified or executed. And so, I just want us to stop and acknowledge that um, many of us did not come to Christ accepting that call. When, um, we, we much more line up with the joyful promise of heaven and eternal life. Yeah, I'll take that. Yes, I want that. And what, what Jesus is showing us here and modeling us here, and there is, there is life abundantly, there is freedom, absolutely. And, there, and, and, and it, is, it is a fulfilling life far greater than, I, I believe, than, than seeking anything else in this world. But we have to acknowledge at some point, maybe I didn't come to Christ um, with the same motivation or, or with all the right motivations and with the, and with the right um, desire in mind. And that's to give my life, since He gave His life to me, to give my life back to Him. And so I believe Jesus shows us what life lived following Him looks like in three ways. You want to write these down? First is a life of service. A life of service. Ooh, I'm going to try to go quick. So you have this verse, Mark 10.45, for the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. You also have this verse in, in John 13.3 where Jesus, it says, I love these words, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God. Do you know what He does next in, in John 13? What does He do? He knows He's from God. He has all authority and He's going back to God. And so he, what? What does he do? What? Yes. He takes off his outer cloak, he, he picks up the basin, and he performs the duty of the lowest servant in the house. He washes their feet. So, that is, again, not what you expect the king of the universe to do. It's a life of service. The second thing is this. A life of suffering. There is so much in the, God, in the New Testament about suffering. Um, in fact, just, just look up that word in a concordance and read the verses around it. It's, it's astounding. I didn't have time to read them all. Not even close. I don't even think I have time to read the ones I have. Um, but Philippians 3, oh, you can write that verse. Philippians 3, 8 through 11. Um, Paul gives account of like everything that I have, all the all the suffering I've gone through is so worth it basically. 
it, it, it's, it doesn't even compare to what I get in return. You can write down 1 Peter 4, 1 through 13. You can write down John 16, 33. Jesus tells us, um, you will suffer in this world, but be courageous. I have conquered the world. And so it's this idea that you can enjoy the resurrection without going through the crucifixion. And Jesus models that for us. The last one is a life of submission. A life of submission. So looking at this prayer, look back at these verses, and you see... Oh, my pages are all messed up. There it is. Um, Nope. Whatever it is. I know it's verse 36, but there's a verse above that. Um, But verse 36 is really the point. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. But nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus displays His humanity in full force, I think, here. He, he's At some point He says, I am, what does He say a few verses above that? Um, I am something to the, point of, to the point of death. Yes. Sorrowful to the point of death. So he, there's, this, there's this anguish that's happening. And He says, Lord, you know, if if all if if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want, in this moment. And Isaiah fifty three, verse ten, des- describes that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Isaiah fifty three is the greatest prophecy of of the crucifixion of Jesus, and it happened six hundred years before Jesus and two hundred years before crucifixion was even invented. And you have this beautiful, almost moment-by-moment prophecy of what happens to Jesus. And it says, It was the will of the Lord to crush Him, because He has put Him to grief when His soul makes an offering for guilt. So Jesus was in full confidence of God's ability and power, and yet He asks, um, in, in, He acted in complete submission to the will of the Father. And so there is a point in life where you will be going through difficulty, maybe it's now, and you will have a choice to, to complain and, and to, to become bitter, to grow, to run from God, or you will have the opportunity to um, surrender and embrace what God is calling you to. And that is the better choice. And so I want to close with this this story about this woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. I don't know if you ever heard of her. There's a picture of her. Um, so I'm going to read her words. Okay, This is a short little ex- description of what she went through. One hot July afternoon in, in 1967, I dove into a shallow lake and my life changed forever. She was 18 years old. I suffered a spinal cord fracture that left me paralyzed from the neck down. Without use of my hands and legs, lying in a hospital bed, I tried desperately to make sense of, this hor- of the horrible turn of events. I begged friends to assist me in suicide. Slip my wrists, dump pills down my throat, anything to end my misery. How could paralysis be God's plan? 
I asked. I had so many questions. I believed in God, but I was angry with Him. How could my circumstances be be a demonstration of His love and power? Surely He could have stopped it from happening. How can permanent, lifelong paralysis be a part of His loving plan for me? And unless I found answers, I didn't see how this God could be worthy of my trust. Steve, a friend of mine, took on my questions and he pointed me to Christ. And now I believe that God's purpose in my accident was to turn a stubborn kid into a woman who would reflect patience, endurance, and a lively optimistic hope of the heavenly glories above. And so she goes on to talk about how the the wheelchair for her started as this symbol of alienation and confinement. And then over time, as she began to surrender and embrace where God had her and what God had called her to, the, the wheelchair for her began to change and it became a symbol of um, independence and grace. And so she's paralyzed, but she's able to get around. So she goes on and she starts a ministry called Johnny, Johnny and Friends, and she's started multiple, multiple ministries under that heading, and one of which I got to work with when I lived in California. So we, I was at a church that's, that um, used to support this ministry called Wheels to the World, in which she was in, at that point, most of the third world countries, if not all of them, and in a lot of the other countries, but primarily the third world countries, and, and some of the second world countries, I guess. But anyway, she was kind of starting there and working her way towards. But she would go into these countries, she would partner with churches um, to, to set up wheelchair rehabilitation centers. She would train people, give them jobs to uh, rehabilitate these wheelchairs and then disperse them amongst the, those who are disabled. And, and I got to go to visit um, one of these. We got to, I got to go partner with them in Poland and um, it's where I bought Bob. Remember Bob? I bought, when I was overseas, I bought this little stuffed animal for her that, I don't know, we lost at some point. But she still remembers. But anyway, I got to see, like, the church partnering with the government to, and we, I even went into the prison there in, in Warsaw, Poland, and got to see where this rehabilitation center was going to be set up, and it was going to be prisoners that were working on it. And I mean, it was, I, we, I, got to stand in the same room as the mayor of Warsaw, which eventually became the president of Poland, and it was kind of crazy. But I got to see, like, this woman and her uh, surrendering and embracing where God had her led to that moment, and to be able to see um, the joy that she brings and the independence and grace that she would offer, along with the gospel. If you read any of her stuff, which I was over this, this week as I was preparing. Um, It's always about getting the gospel. It's always about um, how can we get the gospel in their hands? How can we meet their need, be good news so we can share the good news? So, I love this phrase. Now I believe that God's purpose in my accident was to turn a stubborn kid into a woman who would reflect patience, endurance, and a lively optimistic hope of the heavenly glories above. So, when you experience hardship, when you go through difficulty and suffering, some of which I'm not saying all, everything that you're ever going to go through is God's will for you. I'm not saying 
that that's necessarily the case. I'm saying that suffering and hardship are going to come. And if we have the mentality that victory is through conquering and through overcoming and through never going through hard things, then we will be set up to be completely discouraged. Um, So I want you to spend a few moments just thinking about how God would want you to respond to a specific hardship you're facing now. So, how, so maybe that's the question you want to focus on. Or uh, if, if, if you can't think of anything that you're going through right now, then maybe you can pray for somebody who is. So how would you pray for somebody who's going through a hardship? But just take a few moments, uh, answer one of those questions, and then I will pray and we'll be done. Father, we surrender to you. I ask that that be the prayer of each and every one of us in here. That we would come to the realization that um, this world and this life um, that we are living was given to us by you. And God, therefore, belongs to you. I pray that we would live it under your authority. I pray that we'd live it surrendered to you. And that we would embrace the life you've called us to with confidence and boldness. And when we're down, God, that you would remind us of your promises to us. To be courageous and to remember that you've overcome. That, that ultimate victory has been won in you. And that hardships are just things that we will go through to sharp, sharpen us and strengthen us and Reveal your grace to us and help us and and, and keep us humble. So God, we surrender to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Two quick announcements, guys, and then we'll be up.